Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, September 26th by Pastor Rod Heppel. Today's the second sermon in our Fall 2021 sermon series entitled Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. All right, before I start my message today, a number of you have been praying for our daughter Elena. She broke her leg this week when she was hiking on Vancouver Island with her Kaleo group. Uh, She did finally get her surgery on Friday afternoon, out at 5 o'clock, doing better, healing up. So thank you for your prayers, and you can keep praying for her. If you were with us last Sunday, you know that we started a new sermon series in the book of Acts, and we're going to be in Acts for the next nine weeks, because it's a really long book. We're going to break it up and take a break at Christmas and then come back to it in the new year. Now, Luke was the author of Acts. We went over this last week. He's a medical doctor. He's a close companion of the uh, Apostle Paul. And he's the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So it's kind of like part one and part two of the life of Jesus. The book of Acts um, really encompasses the work that Jesus continues to do through the apostles. And so we looked at that, that it's kind of like the activities or the actions of the apostles, but it's what God is doing through them Uh, in Jesus' work carrying on after he's ascended to heaven. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, which we know is a Roman name, and he calls him most excellent, so we know him to be in some level of government, so he's a Roman official. It seems like this man is exploring faith in Jesus or needing a little higher level of clarity or confirmation of the things that he's already heard. In Luke's own words, he has investigated everything very carefully, right from the beginning, from those who were eyewitnesses, And he's written his own orderly account of these things that have happened about Jesus and what he's taught so that this man, Theophilus, can have confidence in the gospel. Now, this accuracy of Luke is really important to us as well, right? Because we believe in Jesus based on what these sources tell us about those eyewitnesses. Therefore, it's really important to our faith that Luke is giving an orderly account and that it's very accurate and that it's been investigated and it's thorough. Just this last week, I was speaking to a neighbor of mine, and I asked him what he thought about Jesus, and he said, ah, I can't buy that. The resurrection and all those stories, it's just all made up kind of stuff. And you know, I I was able to tell him and assure him that the very first followers of Jesus couldn't buy it either. In fact, they were not convinced until Jesus gave further proof. It had to be conclusive for them. And so the Gospels record for us this whole... um, encounter of the disciples meeting Jesus and how they doubted and how they thought that he was a ghost and then Jesus gave them more convincing proofs. And then another piece of evidence here is that these same disciples who doubted, these same disciples who were disillusioned, all of a sudden turn a corner and they are courageous preachers of the gospel. And so we have to ask our question, how do people go from being scared and disillusioned about something to dying for it? Because that's ultimately where it takes them. And that's what we looked at last week. The disciples were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, something they couldn't deny. And we talked about the fact that it was more than just like seeing a hologram of Jesus off in the distance, but rather they met with Jesus. They talked with him. They touched him. Jesus ate with them. They had all the evidences of the fact that he truly was alive and they no longer could deny the resurrection. They believed Jesus was dead. And now he's alive. And that's what Luke is recording for us accurately. Why? Because no one wants to believe a lie. Now, it's possible that a person believes a lie, but it's not possible that someone knowingly is going to die for that lie. 
And that's what we see in the disciples. They have gone from not believing to believing to the point where they're willing to die for it. Now, from our theme in Acts, it comes from Acts 1.8. We read this, the words of Jesus, after uh, he's risen. And before the ascension, he says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, last week, we looked at the second part of this passage, uh, this verse, where it talks about being the witnesses. And now, today, what we're going to be looking at is the first half of the verse that talks about the Spirit, the receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes. So that's the part we're looking at today, and it's mostly in Acts chapter 2. But to answer our question, how, how is it possible that disciples go from being cowards to being courageous? Uh, the two things that we noted is that it was the convincing proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then this part that we're looking at today, the empowering of the Holy Spirit who came to live within them and to empower them to be witnesses. So that's what changed for the disciples, and that's what also impacts our faith today. So where are we at in the story um, of Acts? Jesus has told his disciples to stay put. Stay in Jerusalem because the Father's sending a gift, and it's the Holy Spirit. Now, as you will see, Acts is a very long uh, book, but it also has long chapters. And as we teach through Acts here, you're going to see that we cover off certain sections, but maybe not every verse because there's just so much information. And so last week we ended halfway through chapter one. The second half of chapter two, I'm not going to read for you. I'm just going to highlight for you what happened there. So the disciples and others, the followers of Jesus, were in one place in Jerusalem, staying put, waiting for the gift that the Father was going to send. Now, during that time, Peter gets up and he addresses this group of followers and says, you need to know that the scriptures tell us that Judas, who was one of us, needs to be replaced. Not just because he's died, but because he actually betrayed Christ. And he quotes Peter, Psalm 69 and 109, for this evidence. And he says this, for Peter uh, said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it and may another take his place of leadership. Now, I want you to note this next part of what Peter says. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. You see that, right? That's important. They're eyewitnesses from the beginning. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Of course, I'm emphasizing this theme, the importance of it, and the credibility that eyewitnesses bring to this entire story. They have two viable options before them. One guy named Joseph, the other guy named Matthias, or Matthias. Uh, so which one do they choose? Well, to be honest, they're not really sure. And so they have this practice of casting lots, which we don't know exactly what it looks like. We have some idea. But they pray and then they cast lots, in a sense, um, trying to put it into God's hands who he would choose to be the replacement for Judas. Now, we may wonder about this practice, and to be honest, I'm not sure exactly what to make of it, but it was quite common at that time. I remember as a kid growing up, I had three siblings, and after supper, the job was to clear the table and then wash the dishes and dry the dishes and put them away. And uh, we always fought over this because it was quicker to clear the table than it was to wash dishes and dry. And so to avoid the squabbling, my dad would take toothpicks and he would break them into different sizes. And then he would kind of hide the toothpicks behind his hand so you couldn't see um, 
the long ones from the short ones. He'd only show you the top, which were always even. And then whoever drew the two shortest ones uh, had to wash dishes and dry. And this was to avoid the fight, which ironically, I had one brother who would still always fight about it. And he would say things like, you took the one I was going to take. And that's what brothers are for. So they drew, uh, they, they cast lots. Uh, we drew toothpicks to prevent or to determine who would do what. The disciples prayed and the lot fell to Matthias. And that's the last of you hear of him in the book of Acts. I don't know why, so please don't ask me. Uh, but he's now one of the 12 disciples, and we assume that he was part of this mission, like the rest of them, the apostles who are sent ones. So that brings us to chapter 2, which is about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And let's read verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, which Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus and 10 days before his ascension to heaven, uh, pardon me, 10 days after his ascension to heaven. The word Pentecost means 50th, and so that's the day that it falls on. They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, uh, Elamites, or Elamites. Uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one, one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. What does this mean? That's a great question. Uh, the wind and the fire and the utterances of these various languages. I mean, they're Galileans. We know these people don't speak all these other languages. Galileans, by and large, are uneducated. How is it that they know how to speak in, in all these different languages? What does this mean? Now, you're familiar with what we call before and after events in history, right? Like before World War II and after World War II or before 9-11 and after 9-11, or before COVID and <laughs> after COVID, whatever that is. But in redemptive history, there's also these definitive moments where God moves, and there's a before and after. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is one of those. If we look in the Old Testament, we see before the exodus of Israel, and then coming out of Israel, the after. We see before the law was given, and then after the law was given. And in Christ's life, we see before Christ and after Christ. So the Holy Spirit here, this is one of those before and after events in God's redemptive plan, which simply means in the plan that God has for saving all of humanity, this is a watershed moment. It's significant. It divides the Old Testament from the New Testament. From the time of God's covenant with the nation of Israel that was uh, governed through the law, through what they call Torah, and, and now it's going to be the time of God's covenant of grace and the establishment of his church 
which is this whole new idea of Jews and Gentiles becoming one by their faith in Jesus Christ, that they are placed together. So there's before the church, and there's not yet after the church, because we're still, 2,000 years later, we're still living in the age of the church. And it's the time of the work of the Holy Spirit. So before the coming of the Holy Spirit, something has now changed after the coming of the Holy Spirit. There's something distinctly different about this time. Now, Jesus had told his disciples about this. He had told them when, in John 14, he was saying, hey, I'm going to leave you. And what he means by that is his death, his resurrection, his ascension. I'm going to leave you, but don't worry. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you um, without parents. After the resurrection, there's going to be one who comes from the Father who will be the advocate, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And his presence will be with you. In fact, it's better that I leave and he comes because he will dwell in you. He will live in you and he will be with you forever. And so they would never be alone. Of course, they understood none of the words of Jesus at that time. It was put like this. And I will ask the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and he will give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, that's who the Holy Spirit is. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So why I'm reading this is because when I talk about the before and the after, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, there was not this kind of emphasis of the Spirit coming to live within you. And now what we see in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of the words of Jesus. That's exactly what the wind and the fire and the utterances are signifying, is the coming of the Holy Spirit to come and live within you. And that it's Jesus coming through the Holy Spirit, that he has not left them alone. And the disciples will receive power and become witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Through that message, salvation comes to all people. So that's, that's how this is working and that's what they are witnessing. So there's this event called Pentecost. Um, chapter 2 opens with the fact that it's Pentecost, and it mentions all these people that are there in the city. Pentecost was one of three Jewish festivals that they were commanded to come to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. It was tied to their harvest. Uh, it's also called the Feast of Weeks. It kicked off with the uh, kind of like the first fruits of harvest, the waving of the barley, and then 50 days later, Pentecost, 50th, 50 days later, they would celebrate the harvest. Uh, it, was, um, it, was a, it was symbolic, right? It was symbolic, and there's a lot of that significance in Jewish culture and tradition that's tied into the significance of this event in Acts 2. Um, a, a ton of symbolism that maybe we miss here today, and I don't really have the luxury to go into all of those kinds of connections, uh, one of them that is of, of interest is that some scholars believe that the timing of this event actually is in keeping with the time, timing of the giving of the law. You know, Moses on Mount Sinai and God giving the law. And, and so they see this correlation between uh, God coming, shaking Sinai and, and power and wind and fire and all those kinds of symbols with the giving of the law, which is kind of like an utterance. And then we see here God coming again to start and establish the church with this same kind of imagery and with these utterances. Uh, so there's kind of a parallelism. But what we do 
think we know about why Luke would mention this is it explains why you have so many Jewish people from different backgrounds, all these different places in the world that are actually there in the city of Jerusalem, which of course is all according to God's plan. This is his strategy. There's a lot of discussion around how the spirit arrived, right? Uh, the wind, the violence of it, uh, the flames that separated and landed on each one, and the significance of that. And I think there's a lot to that. But what we want to pick out and what we want to take away is that these were signs to the Jewish people that were in keeping with Old Testament symbols of the presence of God. So they would associate the fact that this is God. He is coming. He is doing something. And so for them, it would be very much uh, in keeping with the signs. It's a significant event because it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, someone has taken the time to outline on a map these different regions that people came from. It's hard to try to figure out what the significance of mentioning all these places, but someone has pointed out that Jerusalem is in the center and that each place that is mentioned then has a place close to Jerusalem again, like it mentions Judea. So it goes out to a region, comes back to Jerusalem. It goes out then to the east and comes back to Jerusalem. It goes out to the west, comes back, goes down to the south, comes back. And so I don't know if there's much significance to that. It's interesting. I think maybe it has something to do with this whole mission that they're to be on, that the gospel is not to stay in Jerusalem, but that it's going to eventually spread outward and go to all the nations. And these Jews are representative of that. Well, how do the people respond to the message of Peter? Some were amazed and perplexed, and they were curious about what does this mean, while others scoffed and attributed it to being drunk. And I think it's noteworthy that um, two people hearing the same event have two different responses. Uh, they saw it, they heard the message, and yet they respond differently. And I think that's true to faith today. There are people that will hear the gospel, and some will be cut to the heart and believe and trust, and there will be others who re reject it and mock it. So believing in Jesus is still an act of faith. And if it weren't, well, then it wouldn't be faith, right? There would be no need for faith if everyone just simply believed because they had to. Well, the evidence is there and the question is there. Do you or do you not believe? They're asking the question, what does this mean? And that's a good question for us to ask as well. So Peter, filled with the Spirit, gets up to answer that question and he has an answer. He wants to explain it to them. And we're going to see a pattern I'm going to read this Sermon of Peter's, which is three minutes long for me to read, so i got to get you to kind of hang with me, but be looking for this pattern. There's a miraculous event, which is the speaking of tongues. Other times there might be things like a healing. There is a crowd that forms because they're wondering what's going on. And then there's this sermon opportunity where someone preaches. And then there's a conviction of heart, and there's a response by people. They repent, and they're forgiven of their sins. People are saved, baptized, and added to their number. So we're going to see throughout the book of Acts as we read these different um, stories that there's this pattern going on. God does something. It draws a crowd. The word is preached. People believe. They're cut to the heart. And then they're, they're baptized and they're placed into the family of God and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So, two things as we read Peter's sermon to us. First of all, know that what we're reading is according to the plan of God. It's on purpose. And secondly, the second significance is to understand that it's about the proof of the resurrection of Jesus, which shows that he was the Messiah and that they missed it. Okay, so God's plan and proof of the Messiah. Here we go. Acts 2, 14 to 41, Peter's sermon. 
Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, which I always find kind of a funny statement because it's like, what are you saying? They get drunk at 11 in the morning or one in the afternoon? I don't know the cultural context there, but what he's, the point is, it's nine in the morning. They're not drunk, okay? It's not wine. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. All right, so we're going into the Hebrew scriptures. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Now, we know that that wasn't recorded for us in Acts 2. So it's believed that that's a future element of this prophecy where the first half is being fulfilled in Acts 2 and the second half will be um, at uh, the coming of Christ. Blood and fire, billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. So it seems like it's still uh, yet to come. But here's the cool part, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what this is all about. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, so again, he's going to Old Testament scriptures. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and he was buried and his tomb is here, right here in Jerusalem. It's right here to this day you will find his body in that tomb. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. But rather, God has raised Jesus Christ to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear, right here and right now. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. That's what you're to do with this. 
with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There, that's his sermon. And here are the things that I saw in the pattern that we're going to see in other um, stories as well. We see the spectacular event that draws a crowd. We see the sermon that then comes and Peter preaches this one. We see the conviction of heart where they're cut to the core of their being because they now believe, they realize. We see the call for repentance and, and for the forgiveness of sins that comes through repenting. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit, the baptism, and the placing into the community of believers. So my thought as I reflect on that sermon, when I reflect on the outcome of how people responded to it with faith, is where are you at in your spiritual journey as it relates to Jesus? Like, have you realized the miraculous event of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you come to that place of having to ask yourself, what does that mean and what does that mean for me? Have you realized that in your own heart, you have a need to be forgiven of your sins? We can deny our sin problem all we want, but boy, it is evident. It's not just evident out there in the world. It's evident right here within each and every one of us. Have you come to that place of realizing that you need to have your sins forgiven by Jesus? Have you repented of them? Have you turned? Repenting means to turn from. So you're going this way. I'm walking in the way of the world. I'm doing my own thing. I'm my own master. And you turn and you say, Jesus, I'm wrong. You're right. You're my master. I'm following you. Repentance is turning to follow Jesus. And have you been baptized and received the Spirit and been placed into the family of God? That happens by faith, receiving the Spirit and being placed in the family of God. So the work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to Jesus, just like the work of the Spirit in Peter's sermon. It's the work of the Spirit today through our own, in our own lives to bring us to a place where we realize inside of our own heart and our own being that, yeah, I need Jesus. Yes, he's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He came into this world. He died and he rose again. He's the one who can offer me the forgiveness of my sins and eternal life. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which the Apostle Paul uh, wrote through the power of the Holy Spirit, really lets us into a window of what the role of the Spirit is in our lives. What, what happens when this faith in Jesus Christ, what is the Spirit doing in us at that time? So here's how Paul puts it. And I've, I've highlighted there those key words for you to see. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So you see, again, a bit of the pattern that we were looking at in um, Acts, right here again, where you have the message that's being preached and it's, being, it's the gospel of salvation. It's being believed on, the message, Jesus, and they're included then in Christ. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is guaranteeing the fact that they belong to God. And to that, I say, wow, right? Like, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in a moment of sincere faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's what happens in Acts chapter 2. It's what Paul says happens every time a person hears the message, trust in Jesus Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, there is so much more that we could be talking about as it relates to the Holy Spirit, and so much more that we could be talking about as it relates to this sermon that I just read of Peter's. 
there's all sorts of Old Testament allusions going on that we're not going into here today. I just want to say that as we go through Acts, the prominent role of the Holy Spirit is going to come out again and again. And so we will be continuing to speak about the Holy Spirit. But for today, I'm just asking this question, where does this leave us as it relates to this part of the story in Acts 2? Well, first of all, know that Peter's sermon is one that is speaking directly to that Jewish context. And while we might not follow all the importance of those details, the more you look into it, the more it makes you go, wow, I get it. So God was preparing them all along through the Old Testament. By and large, they were missing the main points. They didn't realize how this was going to happen. You know, I said, what, what changed the disciples from being those cowards to being courageous? The resurrection and proof of it. The coming of the Holy Spirit. But there's a third category here too. And it's that when the Spirit of God came to live within them, he illuminated them to understand Old Testament Scripture and what God was trying to say to the nation of Israel. So that now they have more clarity. I'm not going to say they had perfect clarity, but they had more clarity on what the plan of God was about. And they're bringing to light from those Old Testament Scriptures what that clarity is because they're trying to convince their own people. And the reason why this is important is because the scriptures tell us that the gospel comes first to the Jewish people, but it goes out through them to the rest of the world. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And so know that Peter's sermon is filled with a lot of references that makes them go, wow, now we understand. And they repent and they believe and they put their faith in Jesus Christ who they know to be their Messiah, their Savior. Secondly, We should realize that God has shown his power in very visible ways throughout the course of history. Uh, And at various times, he's done it in, in very significant ways, but he doesn't do it all the time. In fact, as we read through the Bible, we see large periods of time that pass in between these kind of time frames of miraculous displays of God's power. Uh, Sometimes it's even hundreds of years before we see God act again in a significant way. It's like he's chosen to reveal his power in certain times for certain purposes. Um, I'll just list some of the ones that we read in Scripture. We see a demonstration of God's power in creation. We see it again during the time of the flood. We see a lot of miracles being done uh, during the Exodus uh, with Moses and the plagues when God rescues Israel from Egypt and he brings them out to the promised land. We see that there's certain prophets like Elijah and Elisha who do a lot of miracles, and then there's other ones where we don't see hardly anything at all, if anything at all. And then, of course, during the time of Jesus in his ministry on earth, he is doing miracles by which it mentions in Acts 2 that accredited him as being sent from God. So these signs and wonders were to help the people realize, aha, he is God's messenger, God's Messiah. And then finally here in Acts, at the start of the church, God again is very active at supernatural ways, things that the Holy Spirit is doing. So it it seems like the power, the miraculous, validates the message and the messenger. So Pharaoh sees God's power and finally believes Moses and finally lets the nation of Israel go to worship God. Um, God at Mount Sinai shook Mount Sinai, right? Um, When Moses brought the law down to the people, the, the... The display of power is validating the message and the messenger. 
the prophets did miracles to validate the message that they'd had from God. Jesus did miracles to prove he was the Messiah. And here in Acts, at the establishing of the church, again, we see miracles and we see these supernatural things that are taking place. And I think, again, it's a validation of the message and the messengers. And the message is that God is doing something new. He's establishing his church. Now know this. Nothing has changed since the time of Acts in the sense that we are still living in the age of the church and we're still living um, in the age of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit really is to convict the world of sin and to point us to Jesus. Sometimes we get a little bit sidetracked into how the Spirit works and looking for certain evidences or, you know, those sign gifts, things. And often it's like, yeah, but the main thing is that the Spirit of God convicts hearts that he draws us to Jesus, that there could be genuine faith in Christ. And then, of course, the Spirit comes to live within us, and he places us into the family of God. That's the thing that has greatest significance. The Spirit also is the one who empowers us. He empowers us to live a life different than if we just walk in the flesh. He empowers us to be bold in ways that we wouldn't be bold to share our faith. He is the one, the Spirit, who produces in us qualities that we can't produce in ourselves. And it's recorded for us in Galatians 5 that this fruit the Spirit produces is love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think it's important to notice that a person who's truly Spirit-filled is going to have those kinds of qualities about them, more so than someone that might say, oh yeah, yeah, I know I'm Spirit-filled because I had an event I spoke in tongues. I was used of God this way. That's great. But this is the evidence of a person who is spirit-filled. The one will never, uh, pardon me, the other thing that the Holy Spirit does is that he is always with us. And I think of that verse in Hebrews that says, uh, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Well, that's a reference to the fact that the Spirit of God has come to live within us. So all of these things are true of who the Spirit is and what he does in our lives, that and so much more that the New Testament teaches about the Holy Spirit. But I want you to know this, that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Spirit of God has come to live within you. That's the point of Acts 2. Something new has transpired, that the tongues of fire that came to light upon each individual person was a representation of something new and distinct from the Old Testament, the before and after. That every single person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes to live within them. So that personal faith in Jesus Christ leads to the belonging in the community of Christ. That there is a personal element and a corporate element. And every single person is included in this. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So notice the word all there. It's inclusive. It's mentioned twice. We're all baptized by the one spirit, and we're all given the one spirit. But remember this. It's not about us getting more of the spirit. It's about the spirit having more of us. It's about us allowing the spirit to, to have all of who we are. And this is really critically important because we've been commanded to be filled with the spirit. Now, we are at the point of faith in Christ baptized by the Spirit into the family of God. But then we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. So how is that possible? How is it that you can command someone to be filled with the Spirit if that's an act of God? And it's because there's a part that we play in that. We choose to say yes to him or no to him. 
In fact, Galatians 5.25 says, keep in step with the Spirit. If you say yes to the Spirit, to God and His will in your life, you're keeping in step with the Spirit. And that's allowing the Spirit to fill you. It's allowing the Spirit to direct you in the way that God wants to produce in you all those qualities we looked at, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. All of that He is doing in you while you say yes to Him. So that's how the command, be filled with the Spirit, actually makes sense. And that's the work of the Spirit in my life. To convict me of sin, to draw me to Jesus, to to guide me in a path of righteousness, to in a moment when I want to be frustrated or when I want to get angry at someone or I want to do what I want to do, that the Spirit is nudging me to be like Jesus. And in that moment that I say yes to the Spirit, I am keeping in step with the Spirit. And the Spirit is producing in me the righteousness and the characters of, characteristics of righteousness that I know I can't produce in and of myself. So, for today's message, the Holy Spirit has come. It's true. It's really happened. We're living in the air of the Spirit. He's working in us and through us. He's alive and well today, and He wants us to say yes to Him more and more and more. That we might be like Peter, that we might share with people the good news of the resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. That they, too, might repent and have their sins forgiven and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, I want to close with this two verses in Titus. Uh, chapter 3, that really kind of captures the essence of salvation and the filling of the Spirit. Paul says, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And to that, I say amen. Join me as I pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that you have given to us that we might know your truth, that we might know your plan that goes way back, that those seeds that were planted, those ideas and themes and stories come to light in the gospel, come to light in events like the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And Father, I would pray that the message we take away from here today is that we would know that we too are filled with the Holy Spirit and that you desire to lead and guide us into all righteousness, into all truth, into boldness to share with others the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.